So uh, I'd like to welcome um, everyone back to Big Ideas on the Go. I'm very excited to have with us uh, our guest from the Electronic Frontier Foundation, Kurt Opsal. Uh, Kurt, hello. Uh, thank you for joining us today. Um, I'd love to get a little bit of background on yourself, um, what you do for Electronic Frontier Foundation, and how it pertains to privacy law. Absolutely. Well, it's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, so as I say, uh, I'm Kurt Opsall. I'm the uh, Deputy Executive Director and General Counsel with the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Uh, EFF uh, is a nonprofit organization dedicated to defending uh, rights online, fighting for things like free speech, uh, fair use, innovation, and uh, privacy. Uh, trying to make sure that we're um, going to the world we would want to live in in the future and not to a dystopian uh, and you know that that has been uh, challenging over the years. Uh, the, the organization was founded in 1990, uh, before even the World Wide Web, when the, the internet was things like uh, bulletin board systems that one might call up with a phone. Uh, and uh, as the organization has continued to evolve uh, over the years, and a lot of the issues that uh, that we've been working on have become more and more prominent as uh, as time has gone on. Uh, I got uh, into this, uh, this area um, in the, uh, uh, the late 90s when uh, uh, I guess the first tech boom was, was happening. Uh, I was working for a, a law firm, uh, Perkins Coie, uh, representing a lot of internet companies, uh, dealing with some of the, the initial issues uh, that were coming up as, as more and more things got online, as, as commerce moved online as some of the user-generated content uh, sites uh, uh, began. Um, and privacy uh, became uh, a, an important part of that. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of the privacy issues that we're seeing today had their, their history back then. Uh, and uh, in 2004, I uh, joined the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Um, and I've, I've been, there, been there ever since. Um, and it's just been a, it's been an interesting ride. Uh, privacy is something that is, is very important to me. I think very very important to society. It is a, a a right to be to be left alone, to have some autonomy in what you are doing, not having somebody look over your shoulder. Um, and it is something that is uh, it's core to a lot of other rights. That if you're going to have freedom of expression that you can't also have it that the, the government is looking at everything that you write and it would chill what you would say. Um, if you're going to be able to exercise some rights to, to organize and to assemble, to have some privacy in how you're able to organize them is, is important. Um, and it is also uh, becoming more and more of a challenge because there are many technologies coming out where the advantage of those technologies inherently has some privacy challenges. For example, having a phone where someone can send and receive calls from anywhere they are uh, brings your location into the play that, that you know, the phone has to know where you are in order to receive the calls. Um, if you are going online, going to a website, you send your browser sends a request to that website. The request has to come back to you. And so where it comes back to your IP address 
that is is part of the transaction. If you want to have a Fitbit that uh, uh, helps you organize your exercise and see how you're doing, it might involve some information about what you're doing. And so we want to have a world in which you can take advantage of those technologies without unduly sacrificing the privacy that, that is uh, inherent in what makes people who they are. So, Kurt, you know, I'm curious. Um, so you, you were in private practice at Perkins, which, by the way, was my, my firm and my first company in the late uh, 1990s my, back in Seattle. Um, but I am curious about kind of the first Internet wave. And obviously, you got to experience of it, experience it. In private practice with Perkins Coie, and you know, since you joined um, EFF, obviously there's been an emergence of a new generation of um, uh, internet giants, Facebook, Google being two notable ones. Would love to get your perspective in terms of kind of the view on privacy before you joined EFF. So before Facebook and Google had really emerged as what we know them today. Um, uh, and obviously today where, you know, they're pervasive, right? Instagram, Facebook, WhatsApp, Google, um, Google you know, the list goes on. Maybe you could touch on that, please. Sure. I mean, I, you know, we, we've, we've seen a lot of evolutions. I mean, social, social media, uh, seen a lot like uh, uh, some, some people might remember that even before Facebook, there were other things, MySpace, and before that, there was Friendster, there was Orkut. Uh, so this, this concept of people sharing information about themselves with their friends online, you know, uh, has been around for a long time before Facebook, it really took off uh, and Facebook emerged as the, as the dominant player. Uh, but it was reflecting, you know, a lot of people in society wanted to take their information about, you know, here's the sandwich I had, here's a fun thing I did um, and put it online. But also this tool became something which became more important than it had seemed. A lot of these things were about just talking to your, to your friends, but it became a public uh, conversation uh, in this process. Uh, and it, like, there was an interesting uh, uh, time period where people had a different attitude about things. There was a, a cartoon that was around in the 90s uh, showing a dog in front of a, a computer, and it said, on the internet, no one knows that you're a dog. And I think that was some of the early attitudes is that the internet gave you sort of a a pseudo anonymity where you could sort of be who you wanted to be and uh, uh, people would have a hard time knowing what, what the truth was. Uh, and I think that uh, what we've seen as an evolution is actually, they definitely know that you're a dog. They know what kind of dog you are, or what your you know, favorite dog food is. And a lot of this information is, 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 is more available. Um, and what I think we've, we've seen is that people want to share their information. I, I really reject the notion that in order to have privacy, you have to go like live alone in the woods and cut yourself off from the internet. Um, but it also means that we have to take some precautions, both technical and policy, uh, to maintain that, that privacy as these companies have become more and more pervasive. And also that the technology has evolved, like we saw the introduction of the cookie technology, saw the introduction of various uh, uh, tracking mechanisms where sites could see receive more and more data about somebody um and this this has meant that there's more and more uh, assumptions that are being made about you uh, i'm curious between kind of before and, and now kind of the more modern period of the internet um you know maybe after the internet crash we'll describe it as have you seen a change in um differences between kind of the young and older 
I, I know clearly younger people are a little bit more permissive in terms of what they share or are willing to share, whether it's on TikTok or some other um, uh, platform. I'm curious if that's evolved or changed from what happened in the late 90s to today. Well, I think, you know, it's a very interesting thing that people often will, will, will point out, and I think uh, uh, correctly, that, that young people like to share a lot of things online. But the, the, I'm, I'm cautious about the next step that some people say, is, and therefore they don't care about privacy, because I think young people do care a lot about privacy. And that's just not my feeling, but there have also been, been studies, they've looked at uh, what the attitudes are, um, of uh, uh, younger people using the internet, and they care a lot about whether the information that they're sharing goes to the people they want to share it with, or is available to 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 others. There's some things that they do want to share with the world. There are other things that they don't. So a phenomenon that has emerged in this process is people will have uh, their deeply personal Instagram accounts, and then they'll have their 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 main account, their public account, and they'll keep those separate. They might have a Facebook account that their parents know about and maybe a TikTok account that their parents have no idea about. Um, and it's really about control. They want to have information go to the right people and not go to the wrong people. The other thing that, that emerged from, from talking to uh, uh, from studies where researchers have talked to uh, a lot of young people is that there's unfortunately a disconnect between what they believe their privacy settings are and what their privacy settings actually are. Uh, and this has a lot to do with, uh, it's getting more and more complex to adjust your settings so that they are correct, uh, that they're reflecting what you really want. Uh, this is something I would, I would say for the, for the big companies, very important to have a good user interface. Uh, most of the privacy scandals that we've seen over the last years can be drawn down to people had an expectation of what was happening and it wasn't what was actually happening. And that goes a lot to uh, the expectations that are built by the UI, by the settings, by the defaults. Um, and if people think they're more private than they actually are, then you'll have a privacy scandal. So to that end, I'm curious about your take on how regulations like CCPA and, and GDP, GDPR before it have changed people's attitude in terms of data tra transparency, uh, in terms of, you talked about controls, um, has it changed the way they, what they expect from their information provider and social networks? Um, has that dribble, uh, dribbled down to them? So that we've seen, yeah, the last couple of years, uh, a, a, a big push to increase uh, uh, consumer privacy regulations. So for a long time, there were some privacy regulations related to when the government can get your information. But uh, over the last few years, there was a shift. And for, for the longest time, the main consumer privacy regulation was uh, about honesty. If someone said something in their privacy policy, they had to do that. But if they said in the privacy policy, you have no privacy, then that would be still honest and therefore uh, uh, not, not a restriction. While the GDPR uh, was a very major piece of legislation from the uh, European Union to say, here's what some minimum standards are, but also and very importantly, uh, a lot more about consent. Uh, how you get consent, consent can be withdrawn. Uh, and it's also the European notion was very uh, different for a long time from the US notion, where the US saw personal information as a piece of data about you that could be sort of bargained around and, and uh, addressed uh, contractually, 
while the Europeans looked at more as a human right that uh, uh, had to have limits on what could be uh, contracted. Um, and so we've seen more of a, a shift to that. And the GDPR, uh, because the European uh, Union is such a big player of the global economy, has had a worldwide effect. Uh, and I think it has inspired things like the uh, CCPA, the California Privacy Regulation. Um, yeah, I have, uh, uh, I'm not sure that uh, I would say that everything I like, you know, the, the GDPR, every piece of it I like. I think there's some things that could have been done better. Uh, but it is a major step towards trying to put this notion of user control consent, withdrawable consent, uh, that can be very uh, important for people, giving people that control they want for privacy. So I'm curious also how you see that changing in the face of this pandemic, right? So you talked about privacy, uh, certainly from a European conception as a, as a, as a human right. Uh, maybe, maybe in the US it's more of a property right. Um, but obviously the pandemic changes things, right? Uh, tracing changes things. People's expectation of privacy is to a degree diminished for the benefit of the community. Um, I know that the EFF published a guide to digital rights in the pandemic. Maybe you could talk a little bit about how, how COVID has changed maybe your organization's view and maybe uh, people's view. Well, the, uh, the pandemic that we're, we're facing now, uh, it poses a wide range of, of challenges. Um, and I think what we're seeing, uh, like one in great deal is the uh, contact tracing, proximity uh, tracking, uh, which we've looked at uh, uh, greatly. There's been a, a push for uh, additional uh, surveillance powers. But I think it's very important that you don't have to give up all of your privacy in order to have, be effective uh, uh, to work on the work on the surveillance uh, or the contact tracing. So one of the things that that uh, has been popularized are apps, apps that would uh, help with contact tracing or help alert people if they've been close to someone who has been uh, infected. And there, uh, there are a lot of good technical efforts have been made to create uh, proximity apps where anonymously, as best as possible, uh, you will have information about whether or not someone was nearby you, but not who they were, not what location it was in, uh, and limits on how much of that information is, is available. And for purposes of you know, getting the disease, the key question is, was someone nearby? Uh, and Apple and Google came out with a protocol, an API, uh, that would use Bluetooth for this to measure proximity um, that tries to uh, balance a lot of these, these concerns. So we're looking at ways in order to address the, uh, the need to have uh, additional information like proximity, but without sacrificing the essential privacy that is, is part of who we are as a society. Okay, no, that's great. Look, I think I think it's uh, well-meaning, well-intentioned, and, and very necessary, especially in light of you know the the headlines every day. Um, you know, one thing I want to touch upon, um, you know, second to last question. I know that there's been lots of interactions with the Department of Justice. I believe at one point they referred to you as as a rabid dog. Maybe you could talk a little bit about why that is, and uh, you know, what what are the lessons learned from your um, uh, interactions with them? 
Well, that, that, that story, that's, uh, yeah, I put that on my bio because it's kind of fun, but uh, so from, from a long uh, time ago. And it came from uh, uh, my, my work in uh, uh, helping uh, service providers address subpoenas, uh, requesting uh, information. And, uh, you know, uh, I think uh, the, the government uh, was, was used to and hopeful for situations in which, you know, if they ask for some information, they just get it. Uh, you know, where, where there is, uh, uh, where the companies are not standing up for the rights of their users. Uh, but uh, uh, as more and more of these uh, uh, upstart uh, startup technology uh, uh, companies were getting in with a focus on trying to uh, protect the users, uh, they were pushing back. And uh, uh, there was uh, uh, apparently a comment made after uh, I got involved in a subpoena defense case to the uh, to the client that you know you didn't have to sick your rabid dog on us and came in and pointed out all the uh, uh, problems with the subpoena and how it was not uh, uh, enforceable. Uh, and I uh, I, was, I was proud of getting that that comment. If if a subpoena is not good, then it's up to the government to to fix it and to make it make it right or not get the information. They have to abide by the rules if we're going to be uh, uh, protecting people's privacy from government overreach. They do. I think it's very important that they abide by the rules. Uh, well put. Um, last question for you. Uh, so we talked a little bit about kind of privacy kind of in the 90s when you were first working at Perkins Coie. Um, after you started with um, EFF, what's happening now with the pandemic? As you look out past the pandemic, 2021, 2022, 2023, what do you expect to see in the way of change, both from a regulatory standpoint and even in terms of an attitude uh, standpoint to how consumers will see privacy uh, evolve? Well, I mean, I think, uh, you know, predictions are, are, are very, uh, very challenging. Technology changes at an extraordinarily rapid pace and it is often uh, hard to anticipate uh, where, where the next thing will go. Uh, but uh, uh, be that as it may, I'll you know, give, give, give it my best shot and I'll put a couple things out there. So one is uh, where we have had a trend over the last 20 years uh, where more and more things are connected, networked, uh, and are, are gathering information. So the, the amount of uh, information that is, is being generated and is potentially about somebody will will increase and people will want to have uh advantage of technology so that their you know their toaster is internet connected their uh, uh, wearables uh, uh augmented reality devices so your glasses are are getting and receiving uh in information all these things will continue to gather more information but uh where i would like to see things go where i hope that they will go for the state of privacy is even though all that information will be gathered uh, that through through policy through technology through law we will be creating an environment in which we take advantage of those technologies while preserving a private space while preserving some of these values that we have cherished uh, and i think that's a future that we could get to a state of privacy if we work hard, like it's not, if you do nothing, we will get there. But uh, if we continue to 
make technology that is collecting just the minimum that is necessary in order to provide the function, storing that data for the minimum time necessary to, uh, to do it, and then getting rid of it, having uh, legal protections uh, to, to protect people from unauthorized uh, attempts to get that information, whether it be from the government or from bad actors. Um, and you can't just have laws because some people will break laws. You also need to have technology to uh, create anonymity, uh, to create early suited an anonymity, um, using encryption to prevent unauthorized access, all these things. Uh, and then even with the laws and the technology, you also want to have policies in place to help interpret those laws, to help guide how laws are being made, to give people uh, goals for how the technology should operate. But if we have those things together, then we can take advantage of these future technologies and not uh, sacrifice our, our fundamental rights on, on the altar of those technologies. Well, so long as I get to have my internet connected toaster in the future and while still preserving my privacy, I'll be very thrilled. Um, Kurt, thank you very much uh, for that insight. Uh, I've enjoyed the conversation. Um, thank, you. Uh, thank you again for coming. I, I wish you a happy 4th of July um, next week. And to our audience, uh, I'd like to thank them for listening. And I'd like to remind them to go and subscribe to Big Idea on the Go, uh, Big Ideas on the Go uh, podcast. And if you can, please leave reviews. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you.